Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. The word of God says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, um, and we thank you, Lord, that um, you have called us here today um, to sit under um, the teaching of your word um, so that we may grow. Um, Lord, we know that this is not the only source of our growth. This is not the only source of work um, that you desire to do in us. Um, what we, but what we do believe is that it plays a profound part um, in shaping our hearts and our minds um, and hearing and understanding your word um, so that for these uh, few minutes, Lord, we sit in submission to what your word has to say. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me um, as, as your servant um, to, to declare your word faithfully and humbly and boldly um, so that we may be sharpened by it, um, and so that we may go into your world from this place, um, declaring um, the good news, um, pointing others to the hope uh, that, that so many are longing for and seeking. And so, Lord, we thank you for this psalm, Psalm 121, um, the, the declaration that it makes um, and the, the tension that, that it, it somewhat alleviates for us and pointing us back to where our, our help comes from. Uh, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for our time together here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Good to see everyone this morning. Um, over these, these next four weeks uh, leading up to Christmas, um, we're going to take time to take a simple look um, at four themes that are conveyed in the Advent season. Um, those four themes being hope, love, peace, and joy. And so if you haven't yet, um, I really strongly encourage you. Hey, parents, uh, by the way, we've got lots of little kids in here today. We're super glad for that. Um, that's never a hurdle or a hindrance. So many of you come to me so many times, they're like, how do you preach uh, with all these people? Well, I've got a lot of noise at my house. And so um, it's not a bother to me. Um, if it's a bother to you um, that someone else's kids being crazy, then bear with them in love. Um, and, and maybe consider just giving them a calming look of reassurance rather than a harsh look of judgment, um, and you should get your kids behaved together. Uh, maybe maybe um, look, look at them in a way that conveys the love of Christ. And so um, what I was going to say is, as parents, now is a great time to kind of show your children um, what it looks like to have your Bible open. Um, and, and even help them. Maybe say, hey, here's the page we're on, 516 today. Uh, maybe just even having it open uh, for them, even if they can't read, maybe a really great opportunity just to kind of teach, uh, teach them this morning. And so if you haven't yet, I do strongly encourage and invite you to have your Bible open 
um, to Psalm 121, and we're going to be walking through this chapter this morning as we explore the topic of hope. Um, So this week we're discussing hope, next week we will discuss love, and then peace, and then joy, but today is hope. And so this week um, I I was watching coverage from one of what feels like the dozens of breaking news stories that happened in our world. Um, anybody else feel that? <laughs> Feels like there were just dozens and dozens of breaking stories in our world this week. And so as chaos ensued from in, in various places throughout our country and the world, it provided an opportunity for those who were tuning in to, to be reminded about the questions that most commonly ring out in the hearts of people all around us. One of the men that I saw being interviewed um, was asked, uh, no, no, one of the men that I saw interviewed, he asked this question to the reporter. Normally, it's the reporter asking the questions, right? Um, th- in this case, it was the one being interviewed asking the question, and he said, what, I, and I quote, what are we supposed to do? Where are we supposed to go? How are we to ever feel safe? That's the question that came from this man being interviewed, and it's the question that we see all around us, not only today, but is a question that has been present within humanity since the fall in the garden. Where is our hope? Where are we to set our feet? Um, and, and, it's, and it's a question that we see actually directly in today's text. And so the context of this psalm, as Courtney read, the context of this psalm, in a lot of your, your Bibles, um, it, will, it will be called the Song of Ascents. Have you ever studied that or, or wondered what that, those little titles mean? But, but this is nestled in into about a 15-chapter um, section of the Psalms called the Psalms or the Songs of Ascent. And so we don't know just a whole lot about, these, um, about this ascent or even who it is that, is that is writing, but many believe these Psalms or songs um, to have been sung by Jews as they trekked towards Jerusalem for annual feasts and festivals. And so there were Jews kind of from, from all around Jerusalem that would make a trek annually or, or, or some certain portion of time where they would trek their way towards Jerusalem for these feasts and festivals. And so the terrain and the experience could have differed depending on from where one was traveling. And so Psalm 121 seems to have the psalmist potentially in the valley portion of his journey. So he may have left his home, and there's a, as he treks towards Jerusalem, there is a portion of that trip where you see the valley. And by the way, you get to Psalm 1, I believe it's 122, and it looks like he's arrived where he was headed. But 121 um, records for us the journey through the, the valley. And as he's on his journey in this valley, the psalmist teaches us something about this God that he longs to see. And, and I want us to look at three things in particular this morning, okay? I've got three, three, three simple points, all right? Three simple points. The first thing that we see that the psalmist highlights is the source of our hope, the source of our hope, really answering the question, who is it? Who is our hope? Like, like the interviewer, like, like the, the one being interviewed asked, where are we to put our feet? Where are we to stand? Where, where are we to go? And so the psalmist answers this question, who the source of our hope is in verses one and two. The second thing we're going to see is the nature of our hope. Basically, what is our hope like? What is he like? So the psalmist established who our hope is. The second thing that that he addresses in the text is, what is the nature 
of this God who is our hope. And then the third thing that we'll look at is the certainty of our hope or the, the promise of our hope. And so here's what I want to do. If you have your Bibles open, I want to read verses 1 and 2. And I wanted to get some interaction this morning. Um, and so I'd love for someone to read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm chapter 121. So in Psalm 120, where this journey seems to begin, so kind of go back a little bit. We're not going to go all through Psalm 120 this morning, but in Psalm 120, where this journey seems to begin for this person on this ascent towards Jerusalem, you see the psalmist in distress. Psalm 120, you've got the psalmist in distress, but notice something. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Notice something in chapter 120, verse 1. What does it say? In my distress, I call to the Lord and what? He answered me. So this answering that the Bible speaks of, there is a whole theology to be understood about God being a God who hears. There is something that we've got to understand systematically in in the scriptures that God is a God who hears. He is not an impersonal, disconnected God. No, rather, he is a God who hears. And it does not merely refer to, when it talks about God answering us or hearing us, it does not merely refer to a, a nod from God to acknowledge that he has heard, but rather an action taken by God to what he has heard, that he intervenes. So again, it's not merely a, I hear you. No, when we see the word answering, especially in this text of 120, it is that, that there is action being taken by God, and he is intervening into the place where we are calling out to him in. And so I said there's like kind of a whole scriptural systematic theology kind of be developed about this. We see this powerfully in Exodus chapter two. In fact, I think it was three years ago, Christmas that we actually walked through Exodus for Advent. Um, we we kind of started in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. And, and, and what happens in Exodus 2 is the people of God are enslaved to the Egyptians. The Israelites are enslaved to the Egyptians. And Exodus 2 says that they cried out for help. And that this cry of cry for rescue, what does it say? Came up to God. And then what does God do in this moment? Well, the text says, 2.24. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then the remainder of the book of Exodus is essentially, (laughs) I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but the remainder of the book of Exodus is essentially God's response to their cry for help. What, what proceeds to happen to the rest of the book with God delivering his people out of slavery, with the Ten Commandments coming, really is a response to the people who have cried out for help from God saying, I hear you, I see you, I know you, I have not forgotten you. I have not forgotten you. And so that's what we have going into Psalm 121. That, that in Psalm 120, there was distress, but God answered and so we in Psalm 121, we have a foundation. We can't miss that. We can't miss what has happened before. In Psalm 121, there is a truth that God is eager to act and eager to respond. And Psalm 121 is the writer's acknowledgement or declaration of the place from which our help comes, but not without first a question. He says, from where does my help come? Hey, this is a, this is a wonderful and relevant question. You know that, right? Um, most of you, whether you realize it or not, have asked this question, and you've probably asked it more than you realize, maybe in different ways. In fact, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in just a minute about 
how common this question might be. But in our desperate need of help, what the psalmist is doing here is in our desperate need of help, we are often tempted to look for help in the wrong places. So we're going to talk about why, why, what, how we see that in the text. But the, the psalmist does a favor in pointing out where we may be wrong and where we look for help. How many of you have ever been glad to be wrong? Hey, no, notice, what I, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say how many of you have ever been wrong. Because that's 100%, right? And I don't want any liars in here. So the question I'm asking is, how many of you, of you have ever been glad to be wrong? Can you think of, an in, of a circumstance, of an instance? So, so being wrong can be humiliating, right? Especially when it's your kids that point it out. Um, I don't know about you, but when my kids point it out, it's, that's, like, that's like, man, I'm, I am humbled. But we could agree in here that there are times when finding out that we are wrong is a relief to us. Um, this summer, I've got a, I've got a little, uh, this, this could take a minute. Hold on. You're like, where are you going? What in the world am I doing, right? That's right. We're, we're, we're edgy in here. So being wrong can be, if you've, if you've read Eugene Peterson, by the way, this, this illustration is going to sound familiar, but it's actually something that really happened to me. And so, um, so, so I'm not stealing because it, it literally happened. Being wrong can be humiliating, but there are times when being wrong is, is a relief. This summer, I was replacing the blade. This is a new blade on my edger. I was replacing this, this blade. Um, I got my ratchet um, to, to take to the, to, the, to the bolt that's on this, not the bolt. Um, I, I, I got this, this ratchet. I started twisting lefty-loosey-righty-tighty, Right? Couldn't get it. And so I was like, okay, I found a pipe. I don't know where this thing came from. Found a pipe, get some leverage on it, um, started, started pulling, started pulling and tugging. I found this pipe and I put this over the ratchet to get some extra leverage. Nope, didn't work. Found a hammer, went and found a hammer. Then I started beating this pipe, started beating the pipe that was on the ratchet that was on the edger. So um, I found a way then to pin down the edger. I think I had a trailer in my garage. I found a way to pin down the edger on one side so that I could, so that I could walk to the other side to jump on the pipe. So there's a big guy jumping on the pipe that's on the ratchet, that's on the bolt, that's on the edger. And so I'm over here jumping on this edger and so couldn't get it. So then I, I did what any sane man would have done really first. I pulled up YouTube. I pulled YouTube up, and I, was, and I was like, how do you replace an edger blade? Like, I thought this was going to be a very quick and easy thing to do, and I, I, I asked YouTube, how do you change an edger blade? And I found the most amazing thing out. Some of you are like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know what I learned? I learned that the threads on the edger blade are backwards. Learned that the threads on the edger, on, at least on this one, are backwards. And so the old righty tighty lefty loosey thing didn't didn't work and so of course what I did next after this YouTube video is I, I looked around I made sure no one saw me doing acrobatics on the yard tool but then I took the pipe off and simply turned the ratchet not righty tighty but righty loosey and I got the blade off and in that moment I was really glad that I was wrong <laughs> because I was about to chunk the whole thing and just go buy a new edger 
That's what I was, I can't get this blade off. Surely there's something wrong with the blade. No, there was something wrong with the operator. I almost threw away the edger to buy a new one. And no matter how hard I insisted on doing it my own way, I would have never got the job done. I would have never got this job done. And so the psalmist here in in verses one and two points out for us that we often look and long for help in the wrong place. And in this way, God is kind and the psalmist is kind, pointing out to us saying, hey, hey, my child, you might be looking in the wrong place. You might be seeking hope and help in a place where hope and help cannot be found. And so there's a, there is a, a reference in Jeremiah 3.23. I found this this week, and it's just it's fascinating. There's a, there's a reference in Jeremiah 3.23 that, that says that the hills are a delusion. The hills are a delusion. And now, I'm not saying this is an, this is an exact cross-reference from, from this to that, but there's an idea that the people of God are seeking help from the hills or from a place where help or hope cannot be found. And, and the way that this psalmist is saying this is some translations say, I lift my eyes to the hills. Does my help come from the hills? Some translations say, does my help come from the hills? And then know that, that the psalmist comes back and says, no, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so Jeremiah 3.23 says that the hills are a kind of delusion of the kind of safety and hope that we long for, and that salvation is not found in the hills, but in the Lord. We might not understand this as much as people in this, um, in this time would have understood this, but are the hills the place where he thinks if he arrives, he will find safety and security? Eugene Peterson brings up this really interesting point about the hills is that in, in this context, in this day, that the hills actually were many times were the places where, where people who were worshiping false gods erected their idols along the ranges of the hills so that they could lift their eyes to the hills and see their idols who were appeasing the gods who were looking down onto the hills. And Jeremiah 3.23, I think, in a way says, hey, the tops of those hills, are a, it's a delusion. It's a, it's a delusion. So Eugene Peterson brings up this point that, that maybe what the psalmist is talking about is this idea that, that I would lift my eyes to the hills and find that my help doesn't come from the hills, but from the one who made the hills, who made those hills. And so, church family, I've got to ask, because this is not theoretical or abstract, like we've got to understand that this means something for us, where is that place for you? Where besides the Lord are you looking for hope and security? In other words, the way that the Bible might say it is, what delusion do you buy into? That if you just had fill in the blank, your hope would be complete. That if you just were in a different scenario or a different spot, that man, I would then find the fulfillment and the longing. My longing would be satisfied. And what the Bible is going to say over and over, directly and indirectly, is that oftentimes those places where we seek hope to be filled, they're just a delusion. The psalmist quickly follows up his look towards the hills with a declaration. My hope comes not from the hills, but from the Lord who made heaven and earth, the maker of the hills. As Romans would tell us, creation is not the goal to be worshiped, the creator is. 
So many of our sins boil down to our worshiping of creation rather than the creator. And so the psalmist somewhat develops this for us. He declares where his help comes from. And so that's the the source of our hope is from the Lord. Secondly, that we see the nature of our hope. What is he like? What is, what is this Lord that, that the psalmist points out is our hope? What is the nature of the, the help and the care that he provides? Well, it, it, in my house, um, we are reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia? We're reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, as we read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, which is the only option to go first, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's number one. I will fight over it. Line the Witch in the Wardrobe is the first one. The second is Prince Caspian, okay? No argument. That's, that's, how, that's the order in which they are intended to be read. And so we are now on Prince Caspian. We're about three-quarters of the way through. Um, but, but as we read The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver is explaining who Aslan is and what Aslan is like to Lucy. Y'all remember this interaction and The, and the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? Lucy asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan. She has not met him yet. She's only heard about him. Lucy asks Aslan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Beaver responds, that you will, dearie. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, asks Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Y'all know who Aslan's supposed to portray in the line of witch in the wardrobe, right? By the way, Aslan, I think kind of on and off throughout the, throughout the series, different characters show up. Aslan's the one that's in every single book, like very pronounced and, and prominently. And so Aslan is supposed to point us as a, as a picture to our heavenly father. And so what the psalmist is trying to do here is something similar to what Mr. Beaver is trying to convey to Lucy. Mr. Beaver is trying to tell Lucy, hey, this is the kind of thing that Aslan is. And what the psalmist does in verses, um, verses three through six is he's trying to tell us this is the kind of God, the kind of Lord who is your, um, who is your, um, who is your help. This is the kind of Lord that he is. This is the kind of care that he provides. And so um, this, is, this is what these four verses read. Would someone read verses three through six? And so these four verses tell us something vital about the kind of care that the source of our hope gives. And who is our, who is our help? Let's just say it together. The Lord, God. So these four verses tell us something vital about the nature of care and the nature of the one who is our help, what he gives. And so there's at least two things that this idea of of him not sleeping nor slumbering tells us. And so we see that, that he will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. And then he repeats again, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There's at least two things that this idea of him not sleeping nor slumbering tells us. The first is this. We need him continually. We need him at all times. We need God, the help of God at all times. You and I do nothing on our own strength or accord. We need the Lord's help when we're awake and when we sleep. And what the psalmist is telling us is that in our, in our sleeping and in our wakefulness, God is there. The second thing that we see is God is never out of reach. Notice, notice how verse 3 focuses in on you. See verse 3? He who keeps you will not slumber. And then verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He not only keeps me, he's not only focused in on one individual person, but he is the keeper of all who belong to him. He is the keeper of all who belong to him. He is a capable God. While we struggle to keep all the things up in the air, God does not struggle to, to care for each one of us personally. So there's a, there's a fascinating scene in 1 Kings 18. Um, anybody ever read the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Really interesting uh, story. Like you, 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 you talk about not being entertained by the Bible. Um, the, the Bible is a great source of entertainment. In fact, um, Tim Keller would say that the, that the Bible um, is the story that all other stories get their stories from. That, that, that all good stories that exist, whether Chronicles of Narnia, Star Wars, whatever that is for you, all of those epic stories, guess what their source is? The Bible, whether they know it or not. And so 1 Kings 18, there is just this fascinating scene where Elijah is taking the prophets of Baal to the woodshed. If you're from Oklahoma, you know what that means, right? I mean, he is taking these prophets of Baal to the woodshed. Elijah, we won't read all of it, but uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, around verses 27, is where you can find this story. But Elijah sets up a deal with these prophets of Baal, essentially to see whose God will respond. Which, which God will, 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 will your gods, will your idols respond, or will my God respond? And so Baal's prophets step right up, and they cry out, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, verse 26 says. <laughs> Elijah responds, this is where the story gets really good. If you're like not a conflict person, you, you start to get kind of uncomfortable with like, man, Elijah's just going for it. Verse 27, Elijah responds mockingly, telling them, how about you just cry a little louder? Maybe, maybe their God is, is musing. Maybe their God is, this is funny, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he's just, I don't know what the, the Hebrew for relieving himself is, but that's what I think of. Maybe your God is on a journey. And then what does Elijah say? Or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be wakened. Perhaps your God is sleeping and needs to be wakened. God's nature, this may have just caused like a, a memory to go back to, to the story of Elijah by, by, by those who have read this throughout history. God's nature is that he is one who never sleeps. He is one that doesn't have to be awakened or cudgeled to respond to his children. You understand that? You understand that? You may, not, you may not fully comprehend it, but you understand the truth that Psalm chapter 121 is trying to establish, right? God is a God who neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's always awake. He is always aware. The text then goes on to say, look at verse 5. 
um, and 6, the text goes on to say that he is our shade on our right hand. He is protection from the sun and the moon. So we won't get into all the details now, but there ought to be an awareness in us in here this morning of the significance of the right hand in times of battle. There, there ought to be, we, we ought to understand that the right hand in times of battle that these original hearers would have been familiar with. So God is, the, God is the shade on the right hand that even as we walk through and we fight our battles that God is there with us providing shade on our right hand. And so this speaks to how God keeps us by sustaining us in the battles and the trials of life. But there's also significance in how we ought to understand the presence of the sun and the moon in this text. At some level, all of us in here know that there are great dangers and despairs associated with the sun and with the darkness. Jacob uh, Campbell's not in here right now, but Ryan Roberts is, trying to think of maybe some other people who are kind of outside for work. You know the despairs and the dangers associated with the, the sunlight of the middle of the day, right? Um. There is, a, there is a level of thirst and exhaustion and danger that the sun brings. And there is a level, maybe some of you aren't familiar with the dangers of the sun, but you know the realities of the darkness that is associated with the nighttime. And I'm not just talking about physical. But you know the, the realities of the, of, of the ways that, that the nighttime is almost the devil's playground, right? In our minds, Sometimes in our behavior, right? Nothing good happens after 11, right? But we're not just talking about physical things. We're talking about the, the despair that is often associated with the nighttime. And so when I was, a, when I was working with students, um, this may sound very unkind. I promise you it was not. Um, when I was a, when I was a, uh, a student minister, uh, I had a lot of high school students text me like after 11 o'clock at night. And it was never like my car's broken down, I need help. It was, it was deep, dark thoughts that they were having about their life and, and all of those things. And I talked to some people to get some advice on, okay, how do, I, how do I know and how do I understand when these things are valid and when should I really take some action? And, and essentially, what, what most of these much older, wiser people told me is they said, listen... Don't respond until morning time. With, with, the, with the light of the day, with the light of the day, things, things may, may get much better. Now, not all the time. But essentially, nighttime brought about thoughts and ideas. I don't know about you, but oftentimes for me, it does. In the middle of the night is some of the times where, where I woke up, wake up the most anxious and, and in despair and just in my own head, and convinced that, you know, the world's out to get me. The nighttime is a time that is associated with not only physical darkness, but real deep spiritual, sometimes mental, emotional darkness. And what the psalmist is trying to say is that, hey, your God neither sleeps nor slumbers. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So church family, whether you are in great physical despair or whether you are in deep emotional despair, the psalmist tells us the Lord is your keeper. He neither sleeps nor he slumbers. Church family, know this, that first and foremost, our hope is a person. 
It's a person. It's not an abstract theory, not an idea, but a God who has made himself known to us. A real, active, responding God who hears, sees, remembers, does not forget. And so that is who our hope is. And then the the final thing that we see in the final two verses is the certainty of our hope. So we've got the source of our hope. We've got the nature of our hope, what kind of hope he is. And then thirdly, we see in this text the certainty of our hope in verses seven and eight. Would someone read verses seven and eight? Now, I know that at some level, through this text, through what the psalm is saying, through what I have said, you might be asking yourself how all of this jives with reality, right? You're thinking like, okay, I, I, I get what the Bible's saying. Nathan, I get what you're, you're preaching, but I'm miserable. I'm in a season of suffering. I'm... I, I'm I'm broken over this. What about the real despair I'm facing? What about the trials that I'm actually walking through? And this is, this, is where, this is where things get really deep. These are some real questions that I think some light can be shed on. But friends, I must first invite all of you. If you've not encountered those moments yet, everyone in this room will encounter these moments, including myself. So what I must first do, because it's what the Bible does, is invites and calls for us to place our hope in God. Just putting our hope in God. And you're like, well, that doesn't really speak to the reality of my current situation. Well, what, what I would tell you first, invite, invite you to do in a loving, pastoral, caring way, is brother, sister, hope in God. Place your hope in him. Don't count your own life, your own safety, your own comfort as that which is most valuable and most worth preserving. Dietrich Bonhoeffer echoed echoed Christ who essentially said that the nature of this life that we are called into is a call to come and die. A call to come and die, to give up earthly comforts to follow him. Know too this, that the scriptures are not dishonest in any way about the reality and the inevitability of suffering. Church family, I don't say that without compassion. I don't say that without a level of, I don't know, I don't know the word trepidation, knowing that at any moment my life could change. But the scriptures are not dishonest in any way about the reality and the inevitability of suffering. If you think that they are, I invite you to read more. Read more of the scriptures. I nor the scriptures are here to attempt to discount all of the deep tragedies and the trials that you may be facing. But what I do know is that is, is that the gospel is that though the gospel may not protect us from suffering, the gospel is fully able to protect us from despair. The the gospel will not, let me say it this way, the gospel will not protect you from suffering. The gospel, in the context of Psalm 121, will and can protect you from despair in life, that there is no hope 
in the midst of what I am experiencing. That even in those despondent moments, there is something that we can cling to as distant and as small as it might feel. The question that we find asking ourselves is, where do we turn? Where do we go? How are we supposed to move forward? And this psalm, in God's goodness and grace towards us, helps us put some handles on that. Verse 7 in the King James Version, um, the more modern versions don't have it like this, but, but I'm going to read what the KJV says. It does not say, he will keep your life, which is a, which is a good translation. Rather, verse 7 in the KJV says, he shall preserve thy soul. That's an important thing. That's where I think maybe some of those who've translated really miss a little bit the mark. I'm not a, I'm not a translator. I'm not a, a scholar in any way. But, but what that may and ought to be translated to is that he shall preserve thy soul. And, and maybe that's just more our own limitedness, limitation in our reading, that when we see keep your life, we think, okay, we're going we're gonna to be successful and healthy all the days of our life. Maybe the way that we ought to understand it is not from a limited vantage point of just keeping my life, keeping me from danger and, 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 and those things that may, that may get us, but rather, he shall preserve thy soul. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He says, soul keeping is the soul of keeping. If the soul be kept, all is kept. Soul keeping is the soul of keeping. If the soul be kept, then all will be kept. The certainty of our hope lies most importantly and most powerfully in the fact that God is the keeper of our soul. You hear that? Let me say that again. The, the, the certainty of our hope lies most importantly and most powerfully in the fact that God is the keeper of our soul. Soul keeping is the soul of keeping. It's the, it's the very center and very soul of the kind of keeping that you and I need. Paul says it in this way, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know why he could say to die is gain? Because his soul was kept by the Lord. And he would be with Christ even if they destroyed the body. So what is certain for us is that what the psalmist comprehended in part, listen to this, what the psalmist comprehended in a small measure, guess what, church family? We know in full. Because we live on this side of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so what the psalmist comprehended in part, we know in full, namely this, that in order to be faithful to who he is and who God has always claimed to be, guess what God did in order to keep our soul? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You want to know why you can place your confidence in the Lord to keep your soul? Is that, is that because God did not even spare his own son? Hey, if there was, hey, if like, there's a lot of things that I would do for, for you in here. Hope you know that. Some things I won't do, but a lot of things I'd love to, I'd love to, if I can help you, I'd do it. I probably um, would not give my son's life for any of you in here. Just need you to know that. Like if we're ever in battle and you're like, hey, uh, I, know you got, I know you got the kids at home, but could, could we make a trade off here? And I, I, I'd, I'd give my life, hopefully, would, would potentially give my life if God would give me the grace and the power in that moment. 
But, but God did not even spare his own son in order to make good on the promises of being the keeper of your soul. That's how sure and certain you can be. In fact, I was, I was reading Romans 8, kind of side-by-side side Psalm 121 this week, and I think Romans 8 is beautiful commentary on Psalm 121. It's, it's, it's the intricate detail. So, so remember, the psalmist wrote with just a... He was, he was, whoever this was, was not perfect, did, did not have all knowledge, believed potentially, most likely, whoever it was, believed in faith, the things that God declared to this person, but did not have the, the, the full measure of what we have. We have a view of the cross that the psalmist did not have. We are on this side of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so what Romans 8 is, is essentially telling us what Psalm 121 told us on the other side of the cross. Psalm 121 looks forward. Romans 8 looks backward and is able to say, God did not even spare his own son. And so Romans 8 is really beautiful commentary on Psalm 121 and really is the intricate detail of how we ought to understand the source, the nature, and the certainty of our hope. So Christian, here's a way. We're going to close our time like this. I would love everyone to, read, to, to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 31 through 39. We're going to do something here, a little activity. Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you're using the Bibles in the seats in front of you, that's on page 944. I want, to, I want to submit or offer a way to read this passage of Scripture. And I believe this is how we ought to understand our mission to share with the world the hope that God provides and how we ought to respond in those moments of great despair and longing. If, if this is unfaithful in any way, the Lord will rebuke me and maybe so will you. So please do it. But this is how I want to read this. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He shall preserve thy soul. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He shall preserve thy soul. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He shall preserve thy soul. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He shall preserve thy soul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He shall preserve thy soul. As it is written... <clears throat> For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He shall preserve thy soul. For I am sure that neither death nor life, he shall preserve thy soul. Nor angels nor rulers, he shall preserve thy soul. Nor things present nor things to come, he shall preserve thy soul. Nor powers, he shall preserve thy soul. Nor height, nor depth, he shall preserve thy soul. Nor anything else in all creation, he shall preserve thy soul. 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He shall preserve thy soul. Man, how, what a promise. Hey, Romans 8 is, is the scriptures being brutally honest about the realities of earthly suffering that you may endure. I mean, it, it, it literally says here, if you're like, hey, the, the Bible says that I'm supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. No, the, the, the Bible, Romans 8, 31, is essentially the, the, the antithesis of that. Now, you, you may die, but neither death nor life nor things now, things to come, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. Why? Because that which God keeps in us is not our comfort, our safety, but preserves our soul. And that's what you and I most deeply long for. That's the message that we carry into the world. Who's looking for hope? God preserves our soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word um, and, the, and the reality of hope. Um, thank you that, that though we often speak in uh, vagueness and abstractness and theories, Lord, your word does not. Your, your word um, is, a, is a concrete declaration of who we are um, and of who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Um, thank you that it, it doesn't sugarcoat things. Thank you that it doesn't hold back. Thank you that it, that it um, is, a, is a place for us that as confused as this world is today in so many areas, Lord, we can come to your word and, and not be confused, that we can understand that, it, that it, is, it is clear at a level to where we can comprehend. But Lord, we, we submit ourselves to who you are and to who you have um, sent so that we may have hope, so that our souls may be preserved. We thank you, Lord, um, and we respond now to your grace to us um, through singing um, and through coming to your table, knowing that none of us deserve the grace of God but that we have been given lavishly your grace. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.